0: Uh, The word utopia was coined about 500 years ago by a philosopher and lawyer called Thomas More. But the idea of a perfect society had been around for thousands of years before that, clearly. Now, utopia is the title of More's book, which tells the story of a traveler called Raphael who is basically going around lots of different places telling the readers just how rubbish everywhere is compared to this glorious place that is called Utopia, the island on which this guy Raphael lived. And every description of the way that society is ordered in that city is really an expression of the author, Moore's, own hopes for what a perfect society could look like. So he wants a better world, a world where there's no private property, where there's no sectarian strife, where there's an indifference towards gold or silver to the extent that they become material for making lose. He wants a six-hour working day and euthanasia. How does that sound for a perfect society? That's his version of an ideal world, but what's yours? what's yours? What does your heart long for? What would you really like to see in existence in this perfect world that you would like to see? What stuff would you get rid of? Well, do you know what God's idea of a perfect society is? It's something called the kingdom of God. And that phrase is common in the New Testament. And even though you won't find the term exactly like that in the Old Testament, it's there. In fact, it's a central theme, really, of the whole Bible. Now, God's idea for the perfect society of the kingdom of God is really comprised of three different elements. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That's the way that he designed life to exist. So Genesis 1 and 2, in the first instance, provides that for us at the very beginning of our Bibles. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve, God's people, live in God's place, Eden, under God's rule. That's his, his word and his instruction. He walked with them, and they listened to him, and they enjoyed his blessing. But then, of course, sadly, Adam and Eve thought that life would be better if they lived independently of God, so they ended up rejecting God's rule, and the results were disastrous. They were no longer God's people, and they were rejected from the garden. So that is the clear indication of the imperfect society. But God had promised to restore His kingdom. And he makes a promise to a man called Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, a couple of times after that as well, saying that this man, Abraham's descendants, will be God's people in God's place and join God's rule again at some point. And the reason I start with all of that is because when we come to 1 Kings 3 and 4, and even a couple of chapters to come, It's not until we get to this point in the storyline of the Bible, in this, the life of Solomon, that we see God's promise to Abraham being so, so close to being fulfilled. And this is as close to Eden as an Israelite would get. This is, in a, in a sense, their idea of utopia. And at the heart of it, a king. A king who rules in Wisdom. And we're going to look at, uh, at this in two points tonight. Uh, first of all, the king who rules with wisdom. And then second of all, the king whose kingdom is blessed. So first of all, the king who rules with wisdom. Let me give you a bit of background first. Last week, we looked at Solomon's request for wisdom. Solomon knew that he was not up for the task of leading God's people, administrating this nation, and, and really performing all the duties of a king. So in verse 9, he asked God for wisdom to govern the people and distinguish between right and wrong. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. And in reply, God said, sure, and you can have a ton of other blessings on top of that. And the proof that God had given Solomon this wisdom is emphasized really in the bookends of the passage that we are considering today. So Solomon's wise ruling in the custody of a child and the extent of the king's wisdom, both of these things evoke awe in both, actually, Israel, God's people, and the nations, those who are not God's people. And Solomon's wisdom brings brings him renown, it brings him fame, inasmuch as it brings his people blessing. So look with me at chapter 3 and verses 16 to 28, first of all. Here's where we see that Solomon, the proof that God has answered his prayer, Solomon has the wisdom to administer justice, to do the right thing, and his people are in awe. It's quite common in those days, of course, for the king to be the final arbiter of justice. There were, at times, there were some kind of legal setup, but there were no courts, really. The king was the, the final arbiter of justice, and Here comes a tricky case. It's the heartbreaking legal dispute over the custody of a child. And the evidence is presented by the accuser, denied by the defendant. Someone in this whole scenario between these two prostitutes is lying, and someone is breaking God's law here. Someone is being downright downright evil, but who? Well, there are no witnesses. There are no witnesses, so that makes it extremely hard to tell. Uh, Parents at home or teachers at school know all about that when there are two parties bickering. But how would the king exercise justice in this scenario? It was amazing in the first instance that he was even hearing the cause of two prostitutes. But here he goes. He is going to seek to judge. How would he judge? Would he judge wisely or poorly? Now, it's terrible when the, the, the wrong kid is sent to the head teacher's office. It's worse when someone is wrongfully imprisoned. In a case of series as this, three lives were at stake. And how could Solomon tell who was telling the truth? Well, in a manner, he was going to do a Sherlock. Okay, I don't know if you watched Sherlock. I got into it a little bit recently. Uh, it's the BBC version with ben- Benedict Cumberbatch and... Sherlock, in in those programs, is always one step ahead of everybody else. He's discerning things that no one else has picked up, even using fairly unorthodox means to solve a case. Well, that's exactly what Solomon did. Cut the child in two and give each woman half. That was an unorthodox ruling. Can you imagine the look on the guy's face who had just brought Solomon the sword? Bring him a sword. Here you go. Cut the child in two. But what first seemed foolish and brutal was, in the end, brilliant, because the real mum made the the kind of sacrifice that mums make. She can't bear to see the child die, therefore, she says, give the child to the other woman." And so justice was done. The baby was returned to its rightful mother, the right verdict was reached, and, as the author tells us, an entire nation was impressed. Solomon's wisdom was proved in his actions. And by his actions, Solomon's subjects were filled with awe at the wisdom that God had given him. Look with me at verse 28. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So his wisdom made a deep impression on the whole kingdom. They were astonished. Now listen. Solomon is always pointing forward to Jesus, the greater king. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, you read someone greater than Solomon is here, and they're talking about Jesus Christ. He is talking about himself. And if people held Solomon in awe for his wisdom in administering justice, imagine how much awe Jesus will inspire when he judges every single case in this world. In the history of humanity. Solomon had wisdom to reach the right verdict. In one difficult case, Jesus, by his infinite wisdom, will get it right in every case. No injustice. The Bible teaches very clearly in multiple places, we must all give an account before the judgment seat of Jesus, the king. He is the final arbiter of justice in this world. And he will see that that justice is done. Every wrong made right. No one will get away with anything. Anyone with designs on evil will be found out. So from the unfair accuser in a domestic dispute at home to the sex trafficker who gets away with a vile crime on account of a technicality, Jesus' piercing insight and infinite wisdom will be seen when he judges the living and the dead. And his judgment will be so right that even those who are condemned will be in astonishment and awe at his judgment. And I tell you something, in this world of injustice, I want to be a part of a kingdom with a king who rules and judges justly, don't you? In perfect righteousness, I am in awe of this King, Jesus, and I wonder if you are, at the wisdom that he exercised in coming into this world as a man to die on a cross for our sin, having declared to all who heard him that he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Rescuer, the Redeemer, the Savior. Perfect existence, brothers and sisters, is only possible when we submit to a king like this, King Jesus, who rules in wisdom. But look with me at chapter 4 and verses 29 to 34, right towards the end of the, the passage that we read. So, here, this is the second part, this is the other bookend. And here's where we see the international renown of the superiority and the scope of the king's wisdom, again, as proof of the fact that God has answered his prayer. And blessed Solomon with amazing wisdom. So the superiority of Solomon's wisdom is laid out. He's wiser than Heman. He is wiser than the Ezra. He's, a, he's wiser than all these celebrity sages. These are well-known guys that are mentioned here in their day. Celebrity sages. Solomon is wiser than every single one of them. If he was around today, reporters would be calling on him for comment on every subject. Such was the scope of his wisdom. The scope of his wisdom is astonishing. He thought deeply and wrote succinctly about God and about the life that we ought to live and the life around us, what wisdom looks like, what folly looks like, what sex and money and power and all these different things that we experience look like. Things that are fruitful and good, things that are folly and sin. And he demonstrated not just that wisdom and expertise when it came to theological things, things about God and living for him. He had a wider curiosity, demonstrated in his interest in in the world and how things work. I mean, when you look at the range of things in verse 33, he was like a botanist, a dendrologist, a zoologist, an ornithologist, and so on. I mean, if he was around today, his TED Talks would be out of this world. David Attenborough would be sacked because Solomon would be giving you planet Earth 3. Now, Solomon's wisdom is to be admired, though, in its superiority and its scope. Don't miss this. Only because of its source, as verse 29 says. God gave Solomon wisdom. And the nations were astonished. The nations were astonished. Do you see this? Whatever God gives us is ultimately for his own glory and renown in the world. Whether it's Solomon's wisdom or the gift he's given us. And God has always designed his people to be living where he wants them to live, in a way that he wants them to live, to be the means by which the nations see the wisdom of God and come to know him. And the full realization of this kingdom of God, of course, is yet to come. But there is, in a very real sense, the kingdom is, in a very real sense, already here. You see, Jesus came, 2,000 years ago, announcing it. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news, he said at the start of Mark's gospel. And Jesus established this kingdom of God by his death and his resurrection, claiming that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And now he calls on us, the church, to go and make disciples of all nations, seeking his glory and his renown by declaring... The wisdom of the cross. Something that seems foolish, but demonstrates God's infinite intellect and glorious grace. Which means that the application, in a sense, in this is for us to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Demonstrate his wisdom with your words. Tell people what is in the Bible. This is God's. Wonderful wisdom. And tell people, demonstrate his wisdom with your life. Let people see the way that God is blessing you. Just as the people saw the way that God had blessed Solomon, let them see it in us. Let them see the way that he's blessing us. And that's what we see in the second point tonight the king whose wisdom is, whose kingdom is blessed. This is chapter 4, verses 1 to 28. Scan this section with me. Here we see what happens when God's king reigns in wisdom. His people are blessed and in three key ways. Three ways that I hinted at in the opening uh, to this sermon. So God's people... Israel and Judah, look how many there are. That's the thing that's highlighted for us in verse 20, isn't it? As numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, that's not just a way of saying there are millions of them. It's like theological code. A code that automatically brings to mind the key promise of God that, that Kyle highlighted for us earlier on. In Genesis 22:17, 17, for example, when God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Okay? So we're supposed to read this and not just say, Oh, isn't that nice? There are tons of them. They must have lots of friends. No, you're supposed to read it and say, God is keeping his promises to multiply them in number after all the different things that threatened God's promise to thwart his plan. Egypt, Pharaoh, a desert, their sin. Even initially their desire for a king. God was so gracious to this people. He has them multiplied. Not just to be his people but living in God's place. It's the second thing that we see, verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River, that's in the east, to the land of the Philistines, that's on the western coastline, where Gaza is today, and so on. And and again, that's not just a, oh, it's a big place. It's It's code again. Listen to this, Genesis 15, 18. God promised to give Abraham... To your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. In other words, we are supposed to read this and see God keeping his promise to give them their own place. A new Eden where they can be God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule. And that's the third thing that we see here. Look at how blessed they are under the rule of God's vice regent, his representative, the king. Now, to live under God's rule means to submit to his authority and enjoy this blessing. That's what you see in verses 20 to 25 in particular. And, of course, in Eden, God ruled by his word. He walked with Adam and Eve uh, personally, uh, instructing them as his people. His presence was with them, and they were blessed with joy in Eden. In the desert wanderings, even, he ruled through a prophet, Moses, instructing his people through him and his law, and his presence was with them in the cloud, and the tabernacle, and they were blessed with freedom and provision and forgiveness. And now God is ruling through the king he has appointed, Solomon. A king who would be God's representative before the people, ruling them before God, and under the king he has appointed, verse 20 says... They're enjoying the king's blessing, okay? Don't ever let the world tell you that obedience to the God is a trudge and a curse. It is again and again in the scripture explained as the thing that brings us blessing. That's what we see here. Verse 20, they ate. God's people did. They drank. They were happy. And under the king God appointed then, they're living the dream. Verse 25, look with me. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own fig vine and under their own fig tree. In other words, they were so blessed as a people, they were living in peace and prosperity. Now, David was a great king, but in David's time, men were warriors. In Solomon's time, they're gardeners. In David's time, you worried that your livestock or your crop would be plundered by the enemies. In Solomon's time, you sat in your hammock in your back garden. And if you were hungry, all you had to do was just reach out and grab fruit from your own tree and munch away. Simple. They were so blessed. This was as close to Eden restored as anyone in Israel had ever got. Utopia. Almost. Almost. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, under the teaching of a wise and just king. This is the kind of existence that God actually wants us to long for. We think that God is out to spoil our joy, take away things that make us happy. But on the contrary, he's seeking our happiness. He wants us to be as happy as he is. So this was Israel's utopia, but sadly, it did not last for long. Again in this passage, even as we saw last week, there are signs that of Solomon's divided heart that's going to scupper things. It's going to be a problem. Still signs that the divided heart that will prove that you need more than just wisdom to follow God. You need love. You need wholehearted devotion to him. For even the wisest man who ever lived made foolish mistakes. So, for example, Solomon, in a sense, made the same mistakes as Adam and Eve made in the garden. He disobeyed God's word. Verse 26 in particular talks about the fact that he acquired horses, some chariot horses. You know, this wasn't a hobby. It wasn't for polo. It was security. Nowadays, weaponry or the size of an army brings a nation security. Back then, it was like horses and chariots. But Deuteronomy 17 forbade the king of Israel from acquiring horses even when he was seeking Israel's security. It would have been better if Solomon had just followed David's example when he said in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The reason the law was there for not acquiring hordes and hordes of horses was because God wanted Israel to see what he had shown them all along, that their security was in him, not in worldly might. Now, this is enough to make the heart sink. Is this ideal then? This idea of utopia... Even an Eden restored for God's people beyond us. Because we'll see, even as we get to chapter 11, we see this great rise of Solomon. Things are seem to be going so well. God's people, God's place, God's rule. And boom, it just crashes after that. And then it just takes this oh, unfathomable descent. It gets worse and worse and worse until it ends in exile. God's people scattered and killed. Not in God's place. They're in foreign lands, not under God's rule. They're being ruled by Babylonians. Is this utopia, utopian idea beyond us? Well, the answer is no. If you're here and you're a believer, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and are living for Him, if the forgiveness that He has won for you just thrills your heart and turns your head future in a longing to see Jesus then you will know that there is a coming that there is a day coming that when we will belong to the perfect society the new heaven and the new earth that where those who believe the gospel will live as God's people, the church in God's place, the new heaven and new earth, under God's rule, enjoying the blessing of the king who rules in wisdom, Jesus Christ himself. And knowing that, we then ought to, well, here are your four points of application. Look forward to it. Take your eyes off the temporary things of this world and turn your head towards eternity. We spend so much time living like this life is the destination for where we're going to be, but it's only the preparation for where we're going to be. And I wonder if maybe in response tonight in prayer, we need to seek God's forgiveness for that worldliness and look forward to the new heaven and new earth and live like you belong to it. Look to Christ in awe of his wisdom and justice and devote our lives to seeing this kingdom grow, sharing the gospel with people. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I do want to ask you how do you feel and how does it feel pursuing your own personal utopia? We all do, right? I mean, your utopia might be something as little as a peaceful retirement and a beach house in Mallorca. Or, you know, maybe if you rewrote Thomas Moore's book, you might write in a world of peace with no cancer or no poverty, no war. Whatever our personal utopias are, I want to say that actually living for anything other than the kingdom of God, this perfect society will ultimately produce frustration. I mentioned in the intro that Thomas More coined the word utopia for the book that he wrote by that title, and its etymology is actually quite interesting. He formed it from two Greek words, though there's confusion in the early days of its release, which words he actually meant to use. So in the book, he writes this poem in there where he uses uh, eu as an eu, the, the Greek word for meaning blessed, from which we get eulogy, for example, and topos meaning place, so this This utopia is meant to be this blessed place. But somehow we ended up with the word utopia derived from the Greek words ou meaning no and topos meaning place, literally meaning no place. There is no such thing. What did he mean? We don't know. But let me tell you this, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. History has proven conclusively that human beings cannot obtain utopia because sin permeates human nature. And sin will always, every time, without fail, create dystopia. Selfishness, dishonesty, distrust make the possibility of the kind of worldly golden age that people run after by buying the stuff that they love, by doing the things that they do, by living the way that they live, will ultimately prove futile if these things are not done for the glory and renown of the infinitely wise King Jesus Christ. Utopia will ultimately elude us because sin causes this imperfect society. Don't we see that day in and day out? In country after country, city after city. Jesus has an answer for us. I read it from earlier, Mark one fifteen. Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That is the application for you tonight if you're here and you're not a Christian. If you do not look to the cross of Jesus Christ and understand that He was paying the price for your sin and winning your freedom from judgment through that sacrifice, this is what you need to do. To hear His words. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. In fact, it's closer now than it ever has been because Jesus is coming back we do not know when and Jesus is not the kind of person that you want to trifle with he will come back at a time when people are declaring peace and safety we don't know when it will be you can't treat Jesus the way you treat the dentist right you know we all like brush our teeth good I hope you do but we all let's confess right we 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 brush our teeth a lot better in that 10 minutes before we go to the dentist, don't we? Or is it just me? It's funny, you open your mouth and your mouth is raw, oh, because you've been brushing so hard. That's not the way we can treat Jesus. It's not about cleaning ourselves up and waiting till that last possible moment and then do the proper clean. No, it, now. You don't know when he's coming back. Today is the day when he offers salvation. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you can repent and believe the good news and truly look forward to Utopia, the new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, where no sin will get in the way ever, 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 where the infinitely wise King Jesus will reign forever. Repent means to turn away from your sin, see it as ugly for what it is, an offense against God, and it's killing you. And turn towards Jesus, the one who died to take away that sin. Believe the good news, the gospel, that those who believe in him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return will have life in his name. Let's take a few moments in the quietness. Whether you're a believer or not, think over some aspects of application that we've looked at tonight. Offer a personal prayer in the next minute, and I'll lead us in a prayer before we sing.